All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Lever's podcast. Uh, Lucas here, new member of the podcast. I was invited to join Tease, Crisp, and Shake because they uh, obviously can't get anything, get their lives together or manage to successfully host a podcast. So glad to be here. I'll be, I'll be serving as the moderator. I'm also the most intelligent person here, so I'll probably have the most insightful content. But uh, I'll try not to dominate the discussion anymore for New listeners, we have uh, Crisp. Crisp is a failed developer um, in Web 2, and so he decided <laughs> to come to Web 3, where he's also a failed developer. We have Tej. He is a failed bond trader in TradFi, and so he has decided to launch, latch on to a Ponzi scheme, lend, borrow protocol. And then we have Xerox Shake, who went from being a uh, YouTube Grubhub driver to a YouTube NFT shiller. So high quality <laughs> stock of humans we have right here. But um, it should be should be a good, we're gonna do this every Sunday. So um, for those of you who are recurring listeners, be looking for us Sunday evenings. Um, we're gonna talk about a variety of topics, um, but mostly surrounding the crypto sphere, and then maybe some stuff that's ancillary to that. Um, today we've got some good discussions. Uh, we're going to start off talking about um, some NFT-related things, NFT marketplaces, their role in the ecosystems. Um, and then we're going to dive into a little bit of DeFi, DeFi stuff um, and a little bit more maybe uh, not macro, but more technical uh, crypto stuff looking at DYDX and uh, kind of what their move to the Cosmos ecosystem looks like. So um, Tej, Chris, Shake, thanks for joining. Let's, uh, let's kick things off. So why don't we – oh, yeah, please go ahead. I was just going to say, welcome, brother. It's good to have you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys inviting me. Um, that mic sounds good. That mic <laughs> sounds really fucking crisp. Definitely got to get on my mic game. Um, all right. So why don't we start off? So um, for you guys who don't know, Shake is um, he actually runs an NFT project called Cyber Samurai. He's wearing the hat right now. I'm also wearing a hat right now. They've got shit NFTs, but they've got good merch. So um, basically, if you want to get some good clothing, check it out. Um, just kidding. It's the best NFT in Solana. But Shake is a founder in Solana. And for those of you guys who are familiar with the Solana NFT space, you probably know that Magic Eden is the most dominant marketplace on Solana. It probably takes 90% plus of all the volume. Um, and it does a service to the space because it's introduced uh, a lot of people say it does a service because it's introduced a lot of liquidity to Solana. It makes it easy for new users who've just onboarded to buy and sell NFTs, see what the top collections are, be a trader and get involved in the community. For that, it takes a fee. It takes a 2% fee on all transactions. And then it also takes considerable fees. Um, I think they vary, but uh, for its launchpad services when it launches new NFTs and we want to start the discussion, turning it over to Shake. Um, Shake, as an NFT founder, you have probably benefited from Magic Eden, or maybe not. Interested to hear, but you know you've also seen a lot of your revenue kind of siphoned off from the two percent. So you put out a, a tweet thread earlier this week, kind of looking into what the pros and cons are, and would love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, I think I only tweeted the cons so far, so um, just want to get you know just want to be accurate on that, but. I mean, I, I, I think I've been thinking about it a lot recently um, because I had this project approach me who like they're doing like a low code, I guess you would call it, Chris. Like it's not no code, but just like a kind of a little plug in thing. Where you just use some JavaScript and basically you spin up your own marketplace and it has a 1% fee instead of 2%. So half the fee and then part and then 
one fifth of that fee goes to the project. So it's like giving you some of that revenue. And so it just had me thinking about it more, but basically like I, I, I'm, I, I wouldn't say I have my mind made up about it yet because like on the like bull case, you know, magic Eden has done a lot for legitimizing Solana NFTs and without magic Eden, I, I, I can say pretty certainly like we wouldn't have the adoption that we have now because before that we had just like uh, salon art and digital eyes, which like are pretty shitty in comparison. Um, and so, you know, I, I want to preface it by saying that, but like, I do think about it for the majority of projects. Cause I'll give you kind of an example that, uh, you know, might be helpful. Like for our project, um, which is a pretty low volume project. Like I, I don't think even, we're probably not even in the top 100. Um, and Magic Eden's made about $200,000 from selling our collection. And in terms of what they've done for our collection specifically, it's like pretty much nothing, you know, besides being a good marketplace, which is what they're doing for everybody. Um, and like when I go to, you know, request changes in our collection, like change the name or like, up, you know, put, you know, update this link or update the picture, like it usually takes 24 hours and it's like this big hassle. And so I, that like stat was just bothering me where I was like, man, I paid them like they've made 200,000 off basically like my work. And, and then I can't even get like simple shit change. So, um, but yeah, that's, that's just what I'll say about it for now. That's kind of like where it started the whole, this whole like rant I've been on. So I think you're also an interesting case, right? Because you launched before Magic Eden was even a marketplace, right? So I think a lot of projects come into the space and Magic Eden is their go-to launch pad. They do marketing for them. Um, they run the launch pad for them. I think they even offer dev services sometimes. Um, but like if you're not launching on Magic Eden, it's pretty hard to get liquidity, right? But um, you're a much different case because you launched beforehand. So I'm curious, do you think if you were launching now, you might be more um, amenable to having Magic Eden be the uh, take a fee like that? Oh, dude, I don't know. I mean, do you, so you mean for the launch feature or like for no, the just transaction? for, for transactions? Um, if I was launching now, would I be more amenable to it? If I was launching now, I, so I I think if somebody does this prop, like, so the biggest argument I've heard against this is like the marketing and the, like people say liquidity, but basically what they mean is that Magic Eden draws attention. And so there's more listing, there's more traders using Magic Eden. So there's more trade kind of the trades begets more trades, you know, right? Like liquidity brings more liquidity. Um, and, but what I personally think is like that if somebody if you have like a strong marketer on your team um and you're able to like you know launch a workable marketplace which on a technical level is is like from from what i hear is pretty easy um i think it would be i think just you like going after magic eden in that way would be really good marketing and then plus if you just trust your own marketing like uh skills i think i think you should be able to drive volume there and the reason i think that is because like Recently, we had we had a bunch of our NFTs still listed on Solana, right? Which is this old marketplace, and I know I've told you about this already, but we we had it like I don't know several thousand. I think it's about four or five thousand soul worth of trading volume on the listings on Magic Eden, and, and we weren't and we weren't advertising at all. We weren't telling people to go there. It just happened to be some still listed there, and people found them, and people bought them. You know, um, we actually hadn't we actually didn't even have this link shared anywhere. And people manage to find it. So I, that's why I think like if you're if the team is trying to incentivize their community to go use a, 
a specific website, I think it'll, I think it'll happen naturally. And then the other side of it too, is that I think, um, in the long run, I think there's just, I think it's going to be like an aggregator game, like already, <clears throat> already on Ethereum, it's pretty normal to use something like, um, Genie or gem where you can buy from looks rare, open uh, I forget what the other big one is foundation or something, but yeah. So, uh, I know I'm just rambling now, but that, that's kind of like, just kind of a couple extra data points, I guess. So, uh, what about you? So TJ, what about from your perspective, right? You are not primarily an NFT trader. You, you do own some NFTs, you buy some NFTs, you know, what do you kind of think about magic Eden and their role, um, in the ecosystem? Um, and then also, you know, maybe kind of from more of a financial perspective, you know, is it is it is it only natural that over time competition will come in and two percent will go down to one percent and one percent will go to point five percent? Something Shake and I had talked about previously is if you look at something like Uniswap, right, which is uh, decentralized uh, AMM, their fees are about point two percent, I believe. So um, even though it's not the exact same thing. It does point to me that, you know, as things become more sophisticated and decentralized, you should see fees begin to compress. Yeah, look, it's an exchange, right? Um, and as we know from many previous exchanges, whether it's prime brokerage for stocks or um, I don't know, whatever, whatever else, I mean, fees trend towards zero, right? Your margin is my opportunity. Like me as a user, someone who's not deep in the weeds, I, I don't really care. Um, about anything other than UX and cost, right? So if Magic Eden has all the liquidity and it happens to have the thing that I'm trying to buy, I'm gonna go there. Unless it's more expensive than some alternative option that does not have a more cumbersome UX. I guess like what I see here is, um, you know, it, it's kind of an Amazon versus Shopify dynamic here, right? So Magic Eden is the Amazon. It has all the network effects at the moment. There's effectively no, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there is, but there's no front end marketplace as a service for Web3 yet, right? That allows for creators to spin up their own front end and own that user experience and really engage with the fans directly and not have to pay rent to Amazon or to Magic Eden. I think when that does exist, what you have just kind of interesting is the thing about art is there is this relationship you have with the vendor or with the artist that you don't have with the vendor of just, you know, this mic that I bought on Amazon, right? I don't care about interacting with them. But to the extent you give me the identical experience on a proprietary front end marketplace, and I know I'm delivering just a little bit of extra value to the creator who, who I appreciate, and it's easy to do, I'm also happy to do that. And so I wonder if we don't see that dynamic play out where the Shopify gets spun up and now all of these artists, you know, shake for, for cyber samurai, they've got their own marketplace because you can spin it up like this. Right. Yeah. I also think another thing about this is it's important to recognize that these are all digital sales. There are no, there's no physical footprint, right? So this advantage that Amazon has with vertical integration where they can drive scale economies because they own everything and there's all these frictions they deal with that doesn't exist here. Right. Yeah. And more broadly in crypto, the moat in crypto by virtue of all this all being digital and everything being open source, the moats are very, very low. And so I think you're going to see a lot like what is Magic Eden? What alternative services is Magic Eden offering such that they do, in fact, maintain a moat and they can keep that liquidity when the competition comes? Yeah, really, really well said and a really interesting comparison, I think. Um, I mean, 
I, I guess, Crisp, from from your perspective, your developer, you know, how I don't, I don't know, like how difficult, I guess, is it to provide what Magic Eden is providing? Because I would guess a lot of like really the, the in terms of like the user experience, that's mostly Web2 stuff, right? Like the back end of this, how complex is that? Uh, I guess I don't think it's very complex, but the number of devs who are familiar with, I guess, the stack is pretty low versus the number of NFT projects that, um, you know, want to launch an NFT are there's a lot of them. So probably that mismatch between the number of NFT projects and devs leads to the need to like list on a platform like um, Magic Eden. But yeah, and I guess for a project, basically to get out of paying those fees, you would need to own the whole stack in terms of both, I guess, technical and marketing uh, to get out of it. So if you have a dev that can uh, actually wire up your UI so you can talk to a smart contract yourself. And if you have the influence on Twitter that you can drive enough users, it's kind of hard to understand why you wouldn't um, have your own site. And I think what Teach said <clears throat> about uh, Amazon versus Shopify, it would seem to be like with crypto and blockchains, it would favor a Shopify model. So um, I wouldn't even be surprised if there's like a Shopify slash WordPress type system for nft projects in the future that help them really easily build their own marketplace it's like um, this thing and someone like kind of writes it one time and everyone starts reusing it it's probably just because it's early so uh there's not enough devs that you know maybe care or also there's a dynamic in the bull market like everyone's trying to make a lot of money and devs are probably making money just doing mints really quickly and now as a lot of cruff gets weeded out it's like, well, you're probably going to stick with a better project and maybe be a little more patient and, and do things uh, a little bit better. And so then you'll see the good NFT projects like own the stack end to end. Um, like I know there's like a lot of devs that basically just like would do as many mints as possible because it was like super lucrative. Right. So maybe now you see like a, a dev that's in NFTs just like stick with one project and make it really cool end to end. And part of that is coming up with a way to not have to pay fees to uh, uh, a marketplace like Magic Eden. Um, when Chris yeah. says a lot of devs, he's referring to himself, I'm assuming, just wiping out, putting out candy machine after candy machine. <laughs> <laughs> I only did it one time. One time, and then Merc like, mercenary. Like, this would be retired if he just if he if he didn't have drift and he just went into NFTs. Yeah, I mean you're spot on. I was trying to be a big brain, and then instead of just minting a bunch, I just uh, and I built a. I mean this is kind of fucked because I built something way fucking cooler. I built a like an arbitrage or a minting bot, and I open sourced it. And I probably just contributed to spam on Solana Network, so I feel bad <laughs> yeah, about you wrote, it. Like the and then OG I didn't one, dude, and then right? I didn't like, even the first use one, it. That was public, right? I only yeah. used it for D gods, but I feel bad because people probably is it still an it. effective bot? Would it does it still work? I don't know. I haven't tried using it, <laughs> but hopefully, I think I mean uh, Candy Machine changed the way they add do fees, right? So, um, hopefully, it's it doesn't work because obviously the spamming is a negative externality. But yeah, I I would I would say you'd expect good NFT projects to try to have a more integrated experience right um yeah where they yeah. own the whole stack i mean st steppen for example right yeah 
exactly. And we've seen the step in decks is basically the most used decks on Solana, which is a uh, kind of, kind of insane. Um, Shake, you have, you have what TJ was kind of talking about though, right? A, a Shopify like experience for um, marketplaces. Is that what this is? Yeah. So I know some people listen to the podcast, so they won't see the screen, but it's, um, it's called candy shop and, I've been approached by them. They won first place in the recent Serum Hackathon and they're like in like the NFT or like Web3 category or something. Um, and then they already have some up and running already. It's definitely early on it. And I think they're still going to do 1% fee, but then 80% goes to their protocol and then 20% goes to the project. But what I think is even more interesting than the fees is just the, the, you, the idea that you can customize it, you know? Um, and I think uh, that that... That the experience of going on Magic Eden and like buying whatever NFT project you're buying, like that experience is really important, I think. <clears throat> and so being able to have a say in like what that experience is like for the, you know, community members or potential community members is like, I think there's a lot of value in that. Um, and there's cool things you can do too. Like we saw the success of uh, Looks Rare where they, rewarded holders or they rewarded traders i mean and this kind of like it, it was kind of like a ponzi nomic kind of thing but like it got people really excited and it was fun and i just think that it would be cool to do something similar um because go, like, go, like go the two percent page sorry this one to, yeah i love how it says nft creators all right scroll down it says like by the best nft projects or something or <laughs> nft creators and then you have wolf like the biggest shit coin. It's like, Toronto. it's like, yeah. <laughs> That's what I was about to say. It's like projects I've never heard of. <laughs> I like, I, I like, I like magpie moguls. Yeah. <laughs> TJ, uh, what do you think? Oh, sorry. Yeah. Go, Chris. Yeah. yeah. I'm just curious. You're, it's like, we're like laying out the case for why it would make sense for people to, you know, be getting out of the marketplace fees. Like, why do you think it's not happening? It's like, if it's such a good idea, why isn't it already happening? Well, well, it it, it did happen with Luxrare, right? It just hasn't happened on Solana. Yeah, and I mean, I mean it's so already... some projects have done things like it, um, like Degen Apes does it, and SMB did it. Um, yeah, so some projects have done it, but I I just think it's, I think it's kind of along the point of what you said, where I think probably most projects, they just accept the status quo and they, they have limited developer resources. So they'd rather focus on building something that doesn't compete with like the 800 pound gorilla, you know? Um, and so they just are like, okay, I'll sacrifice this 2%. But like the more I dug into it and the, of what you were saying about, it's actually not that difficult to spin up a mark, like a, just an MVP mark, uh, marketplace. And then I started thinking about like, here, I'll, I'll show this. Uh, Somebody's I'm echoing on somebody's screen, but or somebody's um, mic. But uh, I'll show you guys this. It's kind of interesting. So this is like the top ten projects over the past um, couple weeks, and what they make monthly revenue from royalties. Like so, this is a rough projection, and so you could assume that it's what uh, just under one third of this number is what Magic Eden is making off an individual collection. So, like on Degen Town, they're making like a hundred, you know. 120 140k in a month off off this one project and if i'm dj town i'm looking at that i'm like man we have the ability to drive all this volume why are we forking so much of this money over if users are willing to pay that much like there's clearly some lost value that you have there whether you cut the transaction cost or keep the transaction cost that 
I just think it's um it's like kind of siphoned out. I, I think I think this is also an interesting point, which my guess is will come up later when we talk about DYDX. But like you could almost argue that Magic Eden makes far more sense as a launch pad when you're a nascent unestablished nft project to the extent you're successful it would also make sense to vertically integrate yeah i think i think i totally agree with that and i think this also gets a little bit back to the moat thing that you were saying tj like the moats are really shallow right so like i was trying to think what are the moats for magic eden right now and i think like as a counterpoint actually to what you were just saying shake is DJ Town did this volume, but they did this volume, I think, because of Magic Eden, right? Yeah, it's like, actually a bad example. Like, yeah, like, you know, everyone was excited about DJ Town and everyone knew what DJ Town was because of Magic Eden, right? So Magic Eden's moat, in my own opinion, is marketing. Like they have they brought in all the volume and liquidity, and now they use that as their main marketing standpoint, and everyone looks to them. Um, but that said, they also, you know, like Magic Eden puts out all this content and I don't know if anybody looks at it. Like they built yeah. out this whole content space. I'm pretty sure it's like nobody looks at it. So I don't think the mode is that deep. And I think um, as it, you know, that like the marketing aspect will continue to erode over time. So um, I'm actually very I'm, like I'm much more of the viewpoint that, yeah, we're going to move towards like this marketplace as a service. I don't know if you guys can think of any other like kind of moats that they've built outside of kind of the marketing perspective. Well, well, on that note, uh, maybe Chris or Shake, you guys know, it, um, A, is Magic Eden open source? And B, why has it not been forked a la Luxor? So Chris will know more. I, I know that Magic Eden is using Metaplex's, uh, like a fork of Metaplex's auction house code. And then I know that Magic Eden has a very do a very like like Web two mindset where they uh, there's actually an an aggregator called Coral Cube and Magic Eden rate limited their APIs so Coral Cube can't even send traffic to Magic Eden like it can't even buy things on Coral Cube um, but yeah Chris might know more than me on the technical side I'm not sure I know a lot of their I know it's not their UI is definitely not open source and. I think uh, from what I've seen on Twitter, I don't think it, the the smart contract code's open source either. Like I see people trying to back like reverse engineer their uh, smart contract code sometimes on Twitter. I uh, mean, I, oh sorry, go oh, yeah yeah. I mean, everyone's a lot of people are still using not everyone, but a lot of people still use OpenSea, right? Mm-hmm, like yeah. so, when it, which is if, which is if it hasn't which played, shock, which if, is shocking because their execution is just unusually horrendous yeah so maybe i don't know i still agree with what you guys are saying but if if you think solana is just like a a lagged version of ethereum and OpenSea still has dominance it's like right you know maybe like it might be a lame answer but maybe there's just not enough like competency to like vertically integrate and there's a lot of supply of like there's a lot of teams that want to do NFTs and even maybe a lot of artists that want to do NFTs, but there's not a lot of like yeah, just enough talent to do the whole vertically integrated thing. And basically Magic Eden charges you a small fee to do that all for you. And that that itself is enough of a moat. I mean, maybe it's not like an invincible moat, but I th- good point. I think I think it's, you know, I also think this whole discussion like is is kind of like started like it's just a representation of how bad the market is right now. You know, like when the market's up, right, like two percent fees 
don't seem like a big deal because there's volume and people are making money. But, um, you know, now that the market's going down, it's, it's a good forcing function to actually like reevaluate and think about these things. And it is definitely going to be interesting to see how Magic Eden adjusts, right? Because um, even though they're king right now, like as we all know, crypto is the most cyclical thing in the world. And as soon as you start becoming the king, like that's when you should start getting worried that I, in my opinion, that's when you need to start getting worried that you're probably due for some sort of disruption. So I'm interested. I really want to see how this candy shop thing works out because I think um, DGen Ape Academy actually partnered with Looks Rare, I remember, um, to launch like an Ethereum based marketplace as I think it is kind of a way to diversify away from Magic Eden and more of the fees went to the DJ Ape DAO. I, I actually don't know how that's doing or if it ever launched, yeah. but it's a um, rareable. I, I a rareable, sorry. That's right. Yes, that's rareable. Right. Um, so what's the candy shop business model? So this is, you know, it's like they, they help you get this up and running within an hour. And then the fees are 1% transaction fees. And Eight and twenty percent of that fee goes to your project, so it's basically just lower fees and but then in a in a customizable uh, marketplace. It's a pretty genius idea. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, I th I think this could be big and like. Is it, you know, isn't but, candy isn't candy shop? Maybe you guys already said this, but it, it sounds like this like help helps you spin up the the marketplace side a, a front end for your nft but it's also like a it's a like a proof of humanity civil resistant thing for the mint too isn't it then they isn't that wasn't wasn't that the origin story oh that's candy machine candy machine yeah candy yeah machine yeah. a lot of candy a lot of candy yeah what's yeah. the obsession with candy because it's like uh like all the candy coming out of the of the of the machine and you only want you want one kid to have one candy <laughs> i think so yeah i don't know that's a good question actually I have that's a I, uh, I choose to believe. So a more philosophical question: um, To what extent do you think like markets are efficient and competitive? Right? Because a lot of this uh, this kind of begs or it doesn't beg the question; it uh, raises the question. <laughs> someone was making fun of someone on Twitter for that for saying "beg" instead of "raise" question, but it raises the question: Like, are if if markets are efficient, wouldn't you expect there to be like a magic Eden with point? one percent fee or something or no magic eden but that's not the case so stuff like that always makes me wonder like maybe we overestimate how efficient things are and there's actually just it's like hard like it there's a lot of uh difficulty in executing the operations of any of these projects and that even in itself is a form of competitive advantage yeah i think that's really well said i mean i think my own view is that running a so like Unis, I I don't I know Uniswap's not a marketplace, but I just look at Uniswap as like a good example of a decentralized product, right? And like Uniswap's a pretty complex product, but they also figured out a way to like run the product and like do decentralized governance. Like I'm trying, like I think the way you bring down fees for marketplaces is you have to create some sort of decentralized marketplace, and that that means you need to have a decentralized governance model for that marketplace. And I think creating a decentralized governance model for a marketplace. I don't know. I, I feel like it's probably a lot more difficult because there's a lot more like in terms of user interface and all that stuff. But at the same time, it might be a lot more easier and a lot more responsive. Right. Like if you had a marketplace where um, everyone could like kind of vote on user, user interface and what innovations they wanted and updates and there was a way to reward developers who did it, it might be 
a lot better than Magic Eden is currently. So like along the, like I like that question, are markets efficient? I, I think that the Solana NFT market is actually more efficient than it probably appears like from the outside because a lot of, um, like I'll give you an example. So D gods, they have 10% creator royalties set in their smart contract. And they are also the highest priced NFT collection on Solana. And, and like, estimated from people who are in D gods like and trade them a lot like it's estimated like about half of all sales are otc because you can use famous you can use this tool to do an otc trade and there's it doesn't like it, it pays no royalty right and so the volumes move there it's kind of a hassle you have to hop in discord you have to negotiate with people they have to set up a link and it's like very poor ux you're using three different apps you have to tr have some kind of trust and, and verify things <clears throat> but half the volume is going there so I actually think the I actually think it is pretty efficient, and I just think it like this is why it's an interesting topic to me because I'm like okay if if there if users will use this and there's like economic you know reason to to create something like this why has it not happened yet and I literally just think that it's like there's just not that many people building in Solana NFTs and and they're all chasing like maybe potentially like bigger returns in the short term or or you know something like that I, but um yeah I think I think markets are like pretty efficient like. I guess just to answer um shake you might hate that i bring this up but um but i need to because um nft creators i think are gonna have to deal with this attack at some point um you, you guys know how back in the day when like um i mean not back in the day i mean there are some extremely valuable like world of warcraft accounts right and those accounts are supposed to be non-transferable right but what people did is they created marketplaces for the passwords. So you could just transfer the account, right? And so it like strikes me that if a creator who built a project, who's owed their fees, granted, right, has 10% fees and the users is like, nah, 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 nah. Someone just kind of needs to spin up a front end. I mean, given how easy it is to spin up new phantom accounts too, right? Like I think for a lot of us, our NFTs are in one of these accounts. Do you guys view that as a potential problem for this theme that NFTs deliver more value to those that actually deserve the value as opposed to middlemen? Or is this not like a reasonable thing for someone to, to spin up? To is it is it are you are you asking like, do I do we think that um, the creator royalties will trend towards zero or like users basically avoiding the royalties as much as possible? Yeah, I guess so. I think that answers the, the question. I do actually think so. Yeah. Like I think it's kind of a shame because I think it's like one of the things that makes NFTs cool as like a brand idea, you know, like to run a brand via NFT and not have to create new supply to create new revenue. <clears throat> but I do think, um, I do think that the royalties will, will get lower. Yeah. Yeah. Or I that think... they'll be circumvented. I mean, yeah, I, I think I think I agree as well, which is I it's just totally ironic, right? Like that. But I think it also points to there are NFTs for artists, right? Where like you're creating you're like a one of one artist and you release one piece every few months or something. And then that piece only gets traded every year or two years. It's not like a super liquid moving one. Um, and in that case, like I think maybe it'll make it'll continue to make sense to um, give fees, give fees to the artists. Um, and then you'll have, you know, like projects like Cyber Samurai and, you know, these more like community based NFT projects. 
Um, and it'll just, you know, it'll, it'll, it might turn into kind of a race to the bottom where people will continually push down fees. And it's now that I think about it, it's actually even crazier because right now the race has been upwards, right, Shake? Like royalties have only been going up and there really hasn't been a lot of pushback, which is not what you would expect. Yeah, that's been really surprising to me. Yeah, so we'll we'll see. We'll definitely see what happens. I mean, obviously, it's super early in the NFT space still. Um, and I, I like the the one thing that I think needs to be true is it needs to be viable to run an NFT project and get the income necessary to continue to run that NFT project. So right. whether it's off the initial mint and then what you do with those prices, whether right. it's off of royalty, you know, like if, if that's not there, you're not going to see innovations in the space. There's going to be no incentive for people to mint it. So um i mean it also for me gets to this question of like you know i think everyone talks about crypto as a way to like disintermediate things right and it's like oh we don't have a middleman so fees go down and i think that's true to some extent but uh i also think it's true that it creates a lot more fees sometimes right like it it it, 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 nece it necessitates more fees along the way and so that's something that i actually usually i'm grappling with because um like i think people have this view that you know, people who don't engage in crypto, their view is, oh, wow, like I'm going to do crypto and it's going to be fee-less. And then they show up and they're like, oh, wait, there's a fee for basically everything because if you don't have that, it doesn't really work. Yeah, I see, I see what you're saying. I mean, I, mean, I think um, like this idea that Web3 is unique because it's disintermediating, disintermediating is like a little bit of a misnomer, right? Like I think in a lot of ways, like all technology is meant to be disintermediating, right? It's like, it's solving a problem. Like a lot of technology these days, it's a networked solution to a problem that's um, gate kept, right? And exploited. And so I think in a sense, like Web3, like, of course, like you're removing middlemen. But in the end, like to this point about how do you drive a moat and pricing power and build a business, like you need to be able to build something lock people in, grow it, and then start to drive pricing power and revenue, right? So in a lot of ways, like I think Chris and I have had this conversation or maybe with someone else, but like this idea that like, you know, crypto is somehow like non-capitalist in that it's going to give you this public good. Like you still have humans behind the protocols, like people yeah. that are successful and have influence, they do the same thing in all eras throughout history, which is they extract. When they're in yeah. a position where they can extract, they're going to say, I've built this thing. I've solved a problem for people, which is why I have all of these users. And now I'm going to up the revenues because I know how I have a good product. And then you get to the point where then that disintermediator is now the intermediary that's keeping the gate. Right. Yeah. And so I think in a, in a sense, like, I don't know, it's an interesting, um, it's an interesting sort of dialectic. Yeah. It's a, it's a, no, it's a really good, it's a good point. It's also, yeah, it's a good point about like maybe some of the outside misconceptions about web three. And as we all know, like web three is hyper capitalistic, right? Like that's, yeah, that's, that's kind of what drives it. Um, but I think it actually, we're 30 minutes in and we haven't even gone on to our second topic. So maybe it's a good segue. Yeah, let's, 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 let's cruise. Yeah. It's a good segue to our second topic. Um, let's talk a little bit about MakerDAO um, because I think, um probably in my own view i think one of like the most interesting debates is going on right now in terms of what's happening on MakerDAO, and most people have no idea even people in crypto i don't think are paying attention because they're not involved in governance um tj like you know obviously you're very involved with the MakerDAO organization and you know like would love to kind of hear 
just like a quick kind of summary from your perspective about like what's happened over the past few weeks and maybe what's kind of precipitated this. Sure. So, um, I mean, there's a lot of context here, right? Um, and what I've kind of learned in this process is if you're, if you're not someone who is inside the Dow 24 seven, um, there's just going to be so much missing. Um, but I guess what I would kind of boil it down to is there was a, there was a fairly uh, contentious um, high participation vote that happened um, about, about two weeks ago in general. I mean, a lot of these votes, um, most of the MKR out there in circulation does not participate. Uh, I think there's like a million MKR in circulation. Lucas, you'd know better than I, cause I think you just um, wrote up a, a thing. Um, and usually like about 10% of it participates in anything. And typically that's like the founders, those close to the protocol, large delegates who you can think about as, um, as, as proxy voters that uh, large funds uh, delegate to, but it's typically very low turnout. Uh, the, the, these issues are incredibly complex. They retire, require time to understand. And this vote, which was basically to approve a core unit, basically a team, add, adding a team, adding a, a business unit, um, you know, had 300 or 350,000 MKR participate, which is 35% of the float as opposed to the usual 10. And I think what the uh, what the sort of divide there was, was th this unit, um, you know, was going to be prospectively led by, um, by, by a guy named Luca Prosperi, who, who I've worked with for a few months, have had, uh, you know, tr tremendous, um, tremendous uh, time with extremely high value contributor, good thinker, um, means, means really well. Um, but he was basically trying to add a, a level of professionalization um, to our collateral onboarding, particular, particularly for real world assets, which is um, kind of another contested, um, not contested, but it's an important issue at Maker. And anyway, this vote, I, I think what ended up happening is this vote became sort of a proxy war for, for a broader thing. Um, everyone came to show up because I, I think people felt... Um, the direction of that vote would really determine it would be a um, it would be a harbinger for the direction of the Dow more broadly. And so anyway, the vote did not go through. Um, and I think in, in, in hindsight, um, it, it was actually really pretty excellent because it sort of uh, beckoned a new chapter for Maker, which is one where people realize that there's something meaningful here being built that people care about. This is an initial DeFi protocol. We're in a bear market. We're still building. Um, people are excited to do this the right way. And people showed up and voted, right? And so whether it was, you know, toxic or, you know, there was, you know, misconceptions about what was being voted for, or if we were voting for the thing that was actually voting for, if it was a broader issue, I don't think a lot of that stuff matters. And what does matter is um, there are important things being built and people care about doing that the right way. Um and so since then, um, you know, as, as we have up on the screen here, um, uh, I'm, I'm part of the real world asset group and uh, we just, um, or, or, or governance just approved a deal to um, basically onboard a regulated US entity um, and their real world assets. So we're pretty excited about that. We're pretty excited about building out real world assets in general and uh, hoping it's kind of the, uh, a, a new theme that uh, DeFi more broadly kind of grapples with and it could be one of the vectors to pull us out of this bear market. TJ, how do you, I mean, so how do you feel about the narrative? Because I, I love what you just said right there. And I think that um, that makes a ton of sense. And I, I think that's a really like more productive way to look at what's happening and, you know, what the outcome of the vote is. I think 
you know, even myself, like I had to learn about this and I was like, you know, it's very difficult to discern what's actually happening. You know, what the, what the vested interests of other respective players are. You got to go in the discord. You got to read tons of chats to like learn perspectives. Um, there's a forum it's, it is transparent, but it's difficult for an outsider to know exactly what's happening. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious um, in terms of like the maker community right now. Um, do you think most people share your sentiments and are still so positive? Or do you think a lot of the people who've been trying to drive more of like this professionalized, um, maybe even more efficient type of uh, maker governance and real world assets type drive are disheartened and feel like they don't have the incentive to continue working? Yeah, look, so I think there's, um, I would say there are two, two forks in Maker's path. One is the governance side and the other is the, um, is the product side, right? Maker's product is, um, is credit. We mint die against eligible collateral. I think on that side, the fork is real world assets or not. Um, and for the most part, most people realize that in some capacity, we must onboard non-crypto assets for the protocol to survive and grow. There's some debate about what sort of assets those should be, if it should really be very simple, low risk, effectively trustless stuff like, like tokenized treasuries or stuff that's a little bit more, um, a little bit messier um, and a little bit more complicated like HVB. So that's on the product side. I think the the fork that's um, is that's more concerning and more contentious is um, how the governance apparatus, how 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 decision making gets done in the DAO. Uh, I think that's ultimately what we need to sort out. There's a group of us that think that this protocol has grown to a level of complexity that the current decision making apparatus is not equipped for, which is to say, many 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 decisions are made by maker token holders right now, right? And kind of to the point we were just saying, there's way too much to follow in Maker for everyone to be making reasonable decisions about all of these little things. That's as if like everything that the government decided on went to referendum, right? It's just not a reasonable structure. And I think it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of complexity. Complexity is solved locally. It's not solved globally, right? You need to let the people most equipped to make decisions on certain domains actually make those decisions. And so whether you want to call that centralized or whatever else, to me, that doesn't matter what you're calling it. What matters to me is to build a commercially viable protocol that continues to deliver a good, deliver a good experience to the user. So whichever decision-making apparatus gets you there, I think you need to go there. Um, there is some issue with, you know, how do we ensure, um, you know, that Maker continues to be sufficiently decentralized um, such that we can continue to operate the way we are. Um, but I think there's a way to build it um, and a, a plan that many of us are, are, are trying to put forward that is actually really, really nice nicely merging with um, with Rune's plan, which which is called the end game that kind of achieves a lot of these things. And to me, there's a lot of chaos, but it's kind of like a double helix in that, like sometimes you're going in circles, but I do think we're moving towards a place where it's like people realize that where we're at now versus 2018 is very different. And it is not, um, what should I say? It's not um, violating our core principles to change how things are done, right? You yeah. adapt to market conditions. Ultimately, we need to continue delivering a good experience. And I, and I think we're getting there. It's taken a lot of time and there's a lot of fighting. But again, mm -hmm. I think we're fighting because there's something meaningful here and it's important to build it right.
Yeah, exactly. You're fighting because there's something meaningful. And, you know, this is what decentralized governance is, right? It's messy and it's difficult and it takes time to, you know, we haven't figured it out in the real world. I mean, I don't know, Shake or Crisp, like you guys have any views? I mean, you know, both Crisp, what about from kind of your product um, experience? I mean, are, are you guys considering decentralization at all? Like what would a governance model look like? Or are you guys going to remain kind of centralized? uh basically like i think you can have DAOs that uh very easily can like update on chain parameters and it, there's like i think you've seen that happen a bit more successfully i think when you get into um trying to figure out how DAOs can vote on strategic initiatives or how to develop the product going forward it gets a lot trickier um, because that's not happening on chain, right? And I think drawing that line is important. Um, and in some ways, I think you'll see that maybe DAOs or token holders vote on governance of existing protocols and then of the existing protocol or product. And then you have um, you have certain members of the DAO that get to choose uh, like future product decisions or new iterations of the protocol, et cetera, and kind of get to keep innovating more on the periphery without having to get everyone's buy-in. Um, I think generally trying to like have, like a, a company doesn't usually weigh, let everyone weigh in and like what's the next product that should be built, right? So, uh, and I don't, it's not like a blockchain solves that problem. So yeah, um, that's kind of my two cents on that shake what do you think man i mean you run an nft project and like you know it's a it, big part of that is community right so you know how but you you can't leave everything up to the community it's a mess right it's filled with dgens who profit driven sometimes you i'll do anything for my holders dude yeah, I, yeah. I have to tell shaney all the time sorry babe can't fucking have dinner with you i gotta do it for the holders <laughs> <laughs> can't have sex tonight Got to do it for the holders. <laughs> um, no, dude. We know uh, there's a lot of more other reasons. Don't worry. You don't got to lie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah of course. Um, no, dude. There's uh, uh, I, I, Yeah, we, we actually talked about this on a on one of the pods, like a couple of pods ago, I think. But I mean, I'm on the same boat as Chris, dude. I think he said it really well. Like, I think there's, I think there's, um, I think it's certain things that that you can use that you can use a DAO to govern, but in general, like it's really difficult for this community of token holders to understand like the nuances that go into running a business. Um, and like, I know with, with, with my project, like the majority just kind of anecdotally, but like the majority of our community is like younger people who probably haven't ran a business before. And so it's hard for them to like see the big picture of how you need to prioritize like resources and capital and time. And what they're just thinking about is like their asset and that they want it to go up in price, you know? And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm much on the same board with Heaney. Like, we, we don't we don't even have a, a DAO, like proper DAO. So, and in my experience, like we've we've run some like proposals. We've even used on-chain governance, and, and it just it, like it was just not effective. Like, it just didn't achieve any business metric. And as soon as I kind of accepted that, like, okay, this is just like a business, and like let me run it like a business, things got a lot better. Yeah, so I think yeah. I, 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 I had one more thing in there yeah. real quick. I think no. decentralization is is a uh, is a broad term. And I think what it initially meant was basically censorship resistance. Like 
there's not one party that can basically say like change how much money you have or change the state of the blockchain. I think that property is very important to keep like to uphold. And that can't like if you if that gets screwed up, then the whole this whole thing doesn't make sense. Decentralization doesn't mean direct democracy like needs to work. Right. And so but then Dow became like direct democracy and like that. That's like a different concept. So I think the biggest thing is that. uh like uh, the censorship resistant, permissionless, open characteristics are involved, right? And no one should be able to like rug you essentially. Um, but I, I don't. I, I think it's a different question whether how direct democracy and like yeah, like Tej was saying, constant referendums play into things. So I, I think that's exactly right. I, I, I say this all of the time, but. I think we're, we, we've lost the plot here, right? Which is, to Chris's point, decentralization was about ensuring that no one got censored, right? That was the fundamental property we are targeting. And what that property meant was that networks were resilient. If a ledger is proprietary, it can be manipulated. If a ledger is spread across a whole bunch of computers that have to come to consensus about things, it's less likely to be corrupted, right? Which means it's less likely to censor any individual group because they're poor, they're black, they're white, they're Mexican, they're whatever, right? It's blind. But just because that quality of decentralization, which is censorship resistance, works, doesn't mean that like on-chain governance all of a sudden has to be like everyone is contributing to it, right? Like, um, yeah. I mean, the idea is nice, Right. But I'm not sure how we walked into the idea that just because everyone could vote, everyone should vote. In fact, what's more powerful here is it's the ledger. It's the it's the history of truth. It's cryptographic truth. So you can always see what someone voted for and when. Right. That's the power, powerful thing, the ledger of events. That's what we can use. But this idea that a distributed group of individuals just because they happen to have a governance token should decide the way that a very, very complicated protocol is built. It has no precedent. No, it's, it's, it's definitely well said. And it gets back to what I think everyone's touching on right here is like, you know, there's no set definition for what decentralization and governance is. Right. And that's something that's still being worked on and determined. And, um, I think I think I admire a lot what Maker is doing because I think what the protocol is doing right now in terms of its governance is they are basically like iterating on how to have a more inclusive and efficient governance model within the bounds of what can be currently done on the blockchain, but also in terms of like society and how society operates, you know, and that's such a difficult task to be doing. So I really I really think it's cool. I mean, I've been looking at Bitcoin and Ethereum. And if you look at their governance models, it's actually astounding to me because it's, you know, there's really no on-chain governance for Bitcoin, right? It's a core group of developers. And basically there's no like formal quorum or like quorum or like um, voting capacity for what's needed to initiate a new update to Bitcoin. It's more like somebody proposes something. There's like informal discussions. Um, eventually like enough people and there's no, it's not sure like what enough people is are like, yeah, we should do this. Then maybe they go forward and actually code it. Then the miners have to implement it. So 
you know, I think it's I think it's something where like everyone's so focused on like crypto and blockchain and what blockchain is and the technology, they're forgetting that like governance is going to be a, probably one of the most con- like contentious aspects of this whole like um, phase that we're going through and this whole growth cycle that we're going through. And I'm interested to see where where it comes out in the end. Um, I, I, I think I, 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 I'm curious now, you know, just staying on Maker, um, let's talk Ave came out last week and they announced they're going to release a token called the go token i think gho um it's basically their stable coin i would say it's an exact replica of Dai. um it's just they're a lend borrow protocol and they're going to enable you to basically use your collateral to mint go they'll use arbitrage strategies the same way that maker uses arbitrage strategies they're going to have something called facilitators which are you know, kind of like a peg stability module in that it enables people to seamlessly um, swap USDC and other stable coins for Go so that if the price drops, you can arbitrage up, stuff like that. Um, in my own opinion, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure how this gets a lot of um, volume and market usage because you already have something like DAI that is the that is essentially the equivalent thing. And, you know, there's deep liquidity for DAI. DAI can be used for a lot of things. It's going to take a while, I think, for Go to kind of be integrated into other protocols for curve pools to be spun up. Um, but I also think it's a sign that, you know, um, anything's replicable in this space. And uh, if you're doing something well and stable coins, as we've seen, are probably one of the best use cases for crypto and with blockchain right now, um, people are going to replicate it because it's a good way to drive user growth and get new revenues. So um, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on kind of Aave's announcement and um, what it might mean for Maker or what it, what it kind of means for the space more broadly. I don't have any good takes. Chris, Tej? I'm, 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 of course, happy to go, but I feel like I've been ranting for a while. So, Chris, if you got something. Chris, you're the DeFi like... engineer. Come on. I'm just a code monkey. Uh, I, I think... Um... Anatoly Sim. <laughs> yeah, I'm just a reply guy for Tolly. Um, I think you sh- like. I think uh, one of my thoughts is that uh, people talk about composability, and there's a certain aspect of uh, you know each protocol will like have one functionality, and they'll be good at that, and we'll live in the system where then like you compose between all of them, or as a user using all of them. But I think in practice, successful projects will try to basically uh, provide as many services as they possibly can, and they'll keep expanding um, until they can't, really. And so there's nothing about a blockchain that stops that kind of natural desire for growth of any, any entity, right? So I think that's maybe what you're seeing here is like they're good at borrow lend, and they're like, well, you know, they have a treasury and they have a community. It's like, well, let's just keep growing. Right. So it's not really shocking to, for them to move in a tangential, but very related uh, domain. I think like you'll see a lot of winning projects do similar things where they don't just like stop. They like keep trying to grow. I think that's well said. I think, I think in my own mind, I'm actually I'm actually a little surprised that Ave didn't do this before, to be honest, because it, it does make sense to me 
from like like you said like they're good at it i mean they're good at len borrow they've got a good risk like parameters set up and the protocol works and so this is like a natural extension and you know ave actually has been making a lot of strides recently they released ave v3 it's got um all these it's got like an e-mode which makes it more efficient to borrow it's got a isolation mode which makes it so that you can use more risky collateral without putting the rest of the protocol at risk um and it's got these things called portals which basically allows you to like burn and mint um ave tokens across the different layer twos on that they're on um ave has definitely been a little bit more aggressive in terms of expanding onto other protocols and layer twos um compared to maker Teach, are you uh you're feeling the heat huh yeah i mean i think um th this is kind of what we honestly love to see right like stuff like this makes it very clear that this is not a big kumbaya festival the knives are out right like if you have the ability if you're a successful application if you have users you're going to do your best to seize territory and build a better protocol for those users right and so to the extent that it is accretive for you to compose someone else's protocol, whether it's a money, whether it's borrowed lend, whether it's an exchange, fine. But if it makes more sense for you to build it yourself, then that's in your power to do so. And I think to delude ourselves that we're not in a Darwinian machine is just silly. So uh, honestly, to me, that's exactly what you want to see. And that's a huge compliment to Maker. Yeah, we think stablecoin is such a unique advantage that we're going to start try to do it ourselves because it is. And I think this is why they're doing it. And you see it with DYDX also. They built a very successful base protocol. They've shown over multiple cycles that they have a risk management engine that works and they've gotten great user growth as a result of it. Now, what are they doing? They're saying we're going to use that risk management engine. We're going to use our brand. We're going to use our security. We're going to use the collateral and the TVL to mint a stablecoin. And the reason they want to do that is when you think about a protocol and where it gets its capital, why would you want to borrow external capital if you can mint capital at 0%? Protocol-owned liquidity where you minted at 0% is an absolute superpower that currently only Maker, Circle, and a few others have. And so what you're seeing is if we have just a shot, even if it's a 10, 20% chance to have our own stablecoin, we're going to give it a rip. So I think there's a bunch of interesting things here. Uh, one is kind of the conflict between composability and vertical integration, right? The idea is that this is all money Legos. So why not just compose something below you? If you're composing something below you, though, you're not owning that part of the value chain. So you might want to vertically integrate. So what you're seeing is successful applications as opposed to compose everything. Start off by composing. Once you go to a significant size, then you're vertically integrating so you can own the value chain. You see that with Aave. I think the other thing is, if you think about what a money is, like monies are networks. They, they benefit from network effects and there tends to be a power law. Most money doesn't do shit. The US dollar accounts for, I think, 85% of international trade, despite being 25% of the market cap of, 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 of money out there. And so when you think about like all these applications, everyone trying to create their own money, like it's not sustainable in the limit, right? Most will die. But everyone wants to give it a try because having that stable coin is a superpower, I think. And so like when you think about where money plays into crypto, I think it's interesting. And I tweeted this to think about what the analogies are. Like, where are the countries? Is Ethereum a country? Is Aave a country? If Aave is not a country, why does Aave has, have a money? Is Maker a country? Is it a city? Is it a company? Sort of interesting things here. Um, but I think in the end, um, this is fantastic. 
because for me at Maker right now, we're dealing with a whole bunch of chaotic, irrelevant governance questions. When what we need to be doing is building or shit like this is going to keep happening. Interesting. I like that. So it's going to, yeah, pushes more innovation. I think Stani, is it Stani or Stani, whatever he, he, uh, he, you know, that's how he kind of framed it as well. It's like, this is a win for everyone. It's going to, you know, first off, it diversifies the stablecoin market a little bit, but second off, it pushes everyone and it creates more competition. So um, it's, a, I think it's an interesting thing to watch. I, I've always, I mean, I've, mostly from talking to TJ. So like, we're all just like shilling our own bags, but like, I just like, to, after talking to TJ about Maker, I remember like a few months ago, I didn't really know that much about Maker and I started really diving into it. And I, I do really like, these DeFi 1.0 protocols that just work, right? Like they just straight up work. And so when I see something like Ave doing this, when I see something like Maker and they're pushing to real world assets, like that's what makes me bullish. It's not DeFi 2.0 Ponzi-nomics financial engineering. It's we've got a really well-working protocol. How do we continue to grow it and make it sustainable? And um, I think it actually brings us to our like next and kind of last topic, which is DYDX and decentralization. Um, I think, you know, we saw a few, uh, was it last week? When was it last week that they announced this or two weeks ago? It doesn't matter. DYDX came out of the woodworks and they said, hey, guys, we launched on uh, StarkNet. Was it? Yeah, they launched on StarkNet um, about, I think it was in April 2021. So they launched on StarkNet just over a year ago. And they've already decided that um, they're going to move onto another layer two, or sorry, onto another uh, blockchain called Cosmos. They're going to build their own app-specific blockchain. For those of you listening who don't know, DYDX, it's like one of the largest crypto derivative trading platforms out there. In my own mind, it's probably the most successful layer two crypto trading platform or layer two like DAP that we've seen built. And uh, I think for the uh, for the Ethereum community, they're kind of viewing this as like a big hit to them because it's like, we're losing now to Cosmos. Um, so, I mean, I've got a few thoughts about it, but you know, before I go, I'm curious, do any of you guys have just some initial ideas or views on when you saw this announcement? I have a, I have a question. You might've already said this. What was the main reasoning of, of them moving to Cosmos? So the, 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 they, they posted a blog post and the, the, the founder also did a few interviews and, you know, there, there's a lot of reasons, but my own like big level reason is he said, listen, like, at DYDX, like our competitive advantage is we want to give the best user experience possible. And we think that decentralization is a really critical part of user experience. And we can't get the type of decentralized, I think decentralized order books that they want on any chain, but Cosmos right now. Um, and so that's what's driving them to Cosmos. They can't get it on Serum? So I'm I, well. I think probably I he didn't talk. He he did mention Solana just as like another chain, but um, he didn't say specifically why they didn't choose Solana. I mean, I think probably it's like you know the narrative around Solana is Solana is not as decentralized as some of these other you know crypto yeah. blockchains. Uh, whether or not that's true, obviously is up Maybe for the debate, outages but, too. Yeah. So yeah, yeah exactly. And if you're running, you stuff. know, as especially Chris, like leverage perks. Yeah. Yeah, if you're running a DeFi protocol, you want to make sure the protocol's running. But I don't know. It's it's. I gotta say, I think it's a really risky move, right? Like they're gonna Shots have to now. Taken, Chris. Okay. They're gonna have to move all of their um, users from Ethereum over to Cosmos. They're gonna have to build a whole app-specific chain on Cosmos. Obviously, Cosmos has the SDK, so it's not a huge issue. 
but it, it's really curious to see, especially I want like part of me also wonders how much Luna collapse played into this and maybe their view that there's a huge opening to kind of be the dominant app on um, the Cosmos IBC. That's a good point. That's a really good point. Yeah, honestly, I haven't thought about this much. I just I saw the announcement. I checked the Adam price, and I like didn't really move too much. So I was like, all right, that, that was the end of it. That was the end of it. <laughs> it, it. It is. It is interesting to me how, I mean, this is just Cope Central, but um, it is interesting given the amount of inertia, uh, momentum rather. Uh, mental momentum, uh, development momentum, moving towards IBC, that atom isn't moving more. Um, because it is, it is. I mean, we don't have to go too deep into it, but the value accrual to atom is in fact not obvious. There is a world where the DAP chain thesis does play out and atom does not accrue value, but it is looking increasingly unlikely and it does look like atom and interchain security it is going to become a shelling point. I would think Adam and its validator set will be utilized similar to how Ethereum is still settled to with L2s. Um, but it is definitely interesting how that, how that hasn't, hasn't budged, budged more. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know if I buy this, uh, this decentralization um, thing. I mean, it, it, it sounds good, right? It's like what you say, which is fine. But kind of back to what we were talking about, like what does decentralization get you? Is and is that property really what Antonio and, and and Co are going for, or is is there something is there something else? Yeah, I mean, what so so or Chris, sorry, did you were you going to say something? Oh, um, I was going to say that their I think their last version, the order book, ran off chain, and it was very oh. decentralized, in the sense that like, okay, what does decentralized mean here? It's like the Nakamoto coefficient. How many things need to go down for it to stop working? And in that sense, having their order book in one, like being more centralized, they uh, didn't feel comfortable with that. And going to this app chain, it's like the the order book is, it's an off-chain order book, but it's running on each of the validators. So, I mean, it's too early to really know what the design is going to be and the code's not open source, but I think there is merit to this design being more decentralized than the L2 ETH design which is kind of crazy because, you know, the EVE people are the decentralization maxis. So um, it's kind of funny to think about. But I, I don't know. I think the I, I just read the post before this because I knew you guys are going to bring it up and I thought it was super interesting. What what talk about your kind of thought process, you know, like what like what do you if you look at Cosmos versus Solana, like for for like another type of, you know, derivatives, perps type protocol, like. It, it, do you think that you could build the same type of product on Solana that you can build on Cosmos and vice versa? Um, yeah, so I think the trade-off is um, it's kind of like building on a monolithic chain, you get more composability. Um, and then building on an app chain, you control the whole stack so you can do more interesting things. And so, for example, if you wanted to be a spot exchange, um it might be tougher to do it on an app chain right now because uh, like if you're an app chain, then there's not all these other DeFi protocols running on top of you. And so like it doesn't make as much sense as like Uni V2 on ETH layer one when it was DeFi summer and you're swapping all those spot assets. 
um, for DYDX, they're building a perp exchange, right? So it's a synthetic asset. So it's actually, it, it matters less. Um, so I think it's really turns out to be like how values comp uh, composability versus, uh, and also on a monolithic blockchain, there's usually already more built out integrations, right? Like people come to Solana because they know, or ETH because they already know there's a lot of projects there. And so it warrants the cost of getting set up. Versus with an app chain, you need to have enough clout that like people will literally come just to integrate with you. And you need more uh, engineering firepower because you're literally bootstrapping whole validator network. So it's kind of a similar, I mean, it's not the exact same, but it's similar to what we were talking about with NFT marketplaces. Like, can you really control the whole stack? Um, need to be a special type of team. And the fact that DYDX has been so successful, it's probably one of the, their, they can, you know, go for this because people exactly um, trust them versus like if a, if a team that had no experience said, we're building this crazy um, type of perps uh, app chain, I don't think people would really believe in it because it is a lot harder to get started than to write a smart contract on top of ETH. Um, so, well, it's not only, uh, it's, it's for, for that sort of for that emerging protocol too. It's not only more difficult to bootstrap; like it's it's not only more difficult to build from scratch, not compose anything, and bootstrap your own validator set. It's also like if you're building in a new environment, a sovereign blockchain environment called IBC. How the fuck are you going to get your users over there? Yeah. For D, yeah. for DYDX, they're just like we have so much length, and we know our protocol is so excellent that. If we go over here, we reckon some of our users will come with us. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, Shake, like you're a trader, right? Like, I mean, I don't know. I don't think we can use EYDX, but I mean, like, what what would you do if like your protocol was just like, yo, we're leaving and we're going to another chain? Do you follow the chain or like, does is it not natural that like some sort of competitor just spins up a forked version of DYDX on Ethereum and just tries to keep the user base there? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I, I'm probably not the the best example, but I would imagine that like most traders would just I mean, they do what's convenient, you know, like they don't they're not like protocol maxis like they just go like I remember telling a lot of people to use drift and like it had like a slightly higher fee than mango and they're like, oh, no, no, no like I'm going to use mango. Like maybe the fee changed since then, Chris, but I think people are just like they just want like the best liquidity, like lowest fees, best execution. Um, not trying to foot drift, but um, <laughs> like for me, like I use Mango Markets. I mean, I, I trade very small size on perps, like like less than 5K usually. But for me, like I trade on Mango Markets instead of DYDX or like, I don't know, I don't have that many, um, I don't have that many alternatives. But I trade on Mango Markets just because I, my money's on Solana. Like I'm used yeah. to using Solana. It's convenient. Yeah. So if Mango moved, I would just use, zero, you know, OX Exchange or Drift or something else like yeah. Also, I, th I think a key thing here to the to this move as well. Um, I, I mean, there have been a number of reasons given. I think both by Antonio and Co. And, and then and then commentators as to why this move happened. One was Starknet was extracting too much rent. Right? Um, they wrote they wrote the, the Cairo program and they had to pay them all this shit. That's one. That's one piece. I'd actually hadn't heard that before. Uh, Chris told me, but the 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 theory that I heard that was pretty interesting was. This idea that early on DYDX was extremely aware of the regulatory risk that they were incurring and they built their structure to hedge against that. So what I mean by that is, you know, when you build a, a derivatives platform, right, 
Um, like there are certain risks that you incur. And if you're DYDX and you're collecting all of these fees, you need to make sure those fees are damn far away from the token, right? And so they built this Chinese wall. And it's like one of the biggest Chinese walls in terms of a token and potential value accrual that I think I've seen in crypto. And so the question is, now that you're this big protocol, like what's the next stage of growth? What the next stage of growth is, is you'd love this sort of supercharged, supercharged growth by delivering some value to the token holders. You can't deliver value to token holders on Ethereum. You can't just sluice them trading fees. That's the security. You're done. So what if you go over to IBC and instead of sluicing trading fees to token holders, you sluice trading fees to validators, right? Huh. You say, look, there's this guidance around BTC and Ethereum being commodities by virtue of their decentralization, by virtue of the fact that you have to you know, mine the commodity, the validators mine the commodity. So if we go over to IBC and we say, look, you stake some tokens, you do some order matching, you're validating blocks, and thus that way you can get paid for security, then maybe that's a way to deliver value to that token, which is just the thing they need to kind of supercharge growth. So kind of like a regulatory arbitrage value accrual um, catalyst at well. I thought I thought that was super interesting, maybe like a little bit conspiratorial, but honestly, it makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, no, I think it is interesting as well. I think I, I, I think actually on the Bankless podcast, they brought that up um, and he the, the founder kind of deflected. Um, which I thought was interesting because he was being pretty open. So um, I, I did, he was like, we don't want to really, he, I don't think he said we don't want to really talk about it, but he, you could tell like his, his demeanor changed a little bit. So I think that's a really interesting theory. I, I'm, I'm also just curious, like how much do you think, you know, I, in my own view, if he is building, if they're building on Cosmos, right, you're betting on Cosmos as a chain, right? Like, I don't think, I, I think a lot, like sometimes I hear from people, it's like, oh, the chain, everything's being multiverse. Like, it doesn't really matter. Like, you know, ultimately everything will be composable and stuff, but that's far out, right? That's way far out. That's definitely not the world that we're living in right now. As Sheikh was just alluding to in terms of his own trading style on Solana, like you're going to operate on the chain that you're on. And so um, I do think it's a huge vote of confidence for Cosmos and for their, um, for the whole design that they have. I mean, I agree with that, but contra to that, it's like, um, for a perp, you're not holding the underlying, right? And it's in some ways, it's like if you were to trade perps on a centralized exchange, you just go like you figure out how to move your money over there and you hear there's liquidity and you start using it. Um, and there's definitely friction to getting people over there. But it would be like going from FTX to, I don't know, like Binance or something. It would be like going to FTX. Let me check out the new DYDX, you know, like there's friction there. But if you... I guess they're betting on basically giving a like being as good as FTX, but on top of uh, like with their own app chain where right now, um, you know, when you're on a more monolithic chain, it's harder to get like, I don't know if it's even possible, but they're saying they're going to do like 100 TPS and 10,000 like or 10,000 TPS because he said they were doing a thousand already for on uh Starknet, so they're trying to get crazy TPS that you couldn't get on like a normal chain. Um, what's, what's, but it, is, that, is that are they are they pushing like is that a uh, technical limit of um, I don't know Tendermint, I suppose. Is that is that like are they pushing up with the upper bound there, or what, where's that number coming from, and why wouldn't they be able to get there? 
Um, I guess, I mean, Solana does like whatever, 3,000 right now. And that's considered high TPS blockchain. So 10,000 just sounds high. I'm, I'm 10, saying this, right? 1, I think it, it says 1, one th No, they're saying like in this, it says for reference, the existing DYDX process is 10 trades per second and a thousand place cancellation per second. So with the, with the goal for an order of magnitude higher. So they'd be trying to get 10,000 TPS. Um, so honestly, I don't know enough about Cosmos, but I assume that means it's running less validators. And so it could get higher throughput. Um, why am I saying all this? I guess I'm just saying like they're trying to make a decentralized network that has the, I guess, uh, throughput characteristics closer to a centralized exchange. And so then maybe other people will be like, okay, well, I have to, I have to go to an app chain to get this type of uh, performance. Um, maybe they would go over there where, uh, yeah, Solana right now is at whatever, 3,000. You're also sharing that with everyone, sharing that with Sam, Drift, Cyber Samurai. We're all sharing the same <laughs> block space. So um, I guess that would be bullish for the app chain. Um, yeah, I mean, what... We're, we're all obviously like pretty, you know, we all use Solana a lot. I mean, what what do you think it says about Solana? Because is it, I mean, like this should be an, Solana should be an ideal trade uh, chain for them, right? Like this is what Solana is meant to do, no? I mean, I guess there's one thing with like the validators and it's expensive to run a validator set. So you couldn't have maybe like the, the uh, have individual validators with order books like you have on Cosmos. But like the TPS and everything, like this is what they're supposed to be doing. Yeah, let, let me let me pop in real quick. I'm sure Chris will have something more um, compelling to say. But um, I, I think this gets back to uh, Antonio's point about: look, we recognize that we're taking all kinds of risks, technical risk, momentum risk, losing users. But ultimately, we want to deliver the best possible product that we can. I personally have no conception of how difficult blockchain architecture is, but Solana goes down. Solana has gone down. And I think DYDX has this luxury, which is we have the technical ability. We have the money. We have the value secured in order to bootstrap our own validator set on our own chain and own our infrastructure soup to nuts. Is it going to be hard? Absolutely. But if it's not DYDX who can do it, who can do it? You know, that's something that a maker maybe could do. But even us, like we're very attached to Ethereum. Our success is very attached to Ethereum. I'm almost in awe of Antonio's move here, which is to say, I'm so confident that we can build a good product that I'm comfortable owning and building the entire value chain. And I think that's really why that why they're kind of doing it. You know, he yeah. sees if they can if they can nail it through this architecture, they'll really nail it. I don't think he wants any, um, any more contingencies, you know? Yeah. He wants to, he wants yeah. to build on a, on a, on a blank slate. Yeah. That was well I said, mean, dude. It's yeah. a pretty Chad move. <laughs> it's also I mean, super it's, risky. Also like I'm, we're, we're acting like we know that this like is going to get 10,000 TPS and, Everyone's yeah. gonna go over there. Like it. Like no one might go over there. Get some fun. Get some healthy fun in here. Come on. Oh, I'm just saying. Like you're like, well, why <laughs> no, is it right. going Solana? Like, well, 
I don't know. This hasn't worked yet. And there could be a lot of things. Maybe he thinks he can have a more valuable token if you have to stake the token on the L1. And he's like, I want the value to go to my L1 token. I don't want to pay for Solana for their stake. There's a lot of things that could be going on. And I mean, Solana, I guess Solana is one of the part of the Solana thesis is you'll basically bridge assets and trade spot on top of Solana. And right now, I mean, like Serum still does some of the most volume. So like it's it's just a different, you know, approach, right? Yeah. Where DYDX moving to its own app chain would make doing spot a lot harder, I guess, until the whole IB thing, IBC thing turns around and if like the whole Cosmos IBC ecosystem flourishes. So, I mean, there's just different risk, right? Um, I don't think it's a clear right decision. Um, also, yeah. for the record, L2, ETH L2s go down all the time. DYDX and, went down. And Cosmos and Hub chains. Yeah, Osmo went down. <laughs> so it's just <laughs> not recently. like, oh well, you know, like yeah. there are all these things go and might go down. I mean it's like they just they just pause for a little bit. They don't I, they don't go down forever. Um yeah. so it's it's just a lot of you know, a lot of nuances. Um maybe they try this and the year doesn't work as well, then they come to Solana because you know, they're like uh we actually, you know. It's not reasonable to run our own validator set, and it's not as fast as we thought it was. Or maybe they get DDoS because they're running like three. Uh, they're running like three validators or something. You know, part of me, part of me hopes that like a year from now, DYDX is like, oh, we're moving over to Solana, and then a year for later, they're like, oh, we're moving over to Celestia. You know, like I just would love for them to just hop from blockchain to blockchain, like try every single blockchain and then be the authority on like, what is the best blockchain for what they want to do? You know, if you don't try it, you don't really know. Um, and then the only other thing I want to say is I do think this is really like, I think slowly there's this like app specific blockchain narrative that's starting to build up. Right. And we have Cosmos, we have um, Celestia, um, we have Avalanche with their subnets. We have Polygon with Polygon Edge. Like everyone's moving towards this, like you need to have an app specific blockchain. And this, I think, is the first really big example of we're seeing that happen. And I'm curious to see a year or two for now where that narrative is at and how many projects are really following that. Because despite the narrative up to now, I don't think we've really seen it. And this could be a big catalyst for starting to see projects go after it. So, so I have a this is this, this reminds me again of a an example where the promise of Web three is um, reverting back to a traditional structure, right? So, with ETH, ETH is this big monolithic blockchain, extremely decentralized validator set, right? Has a lot of value that's securing it. Um, in order for ledgers to be or transactions to be added a whole bunch of computers around the world have to come to consensus you have distributed ledger technology compared to the closed garden that is web 2 and proprietary ledgers now you have this dap chain thesis coming the dap chain thesis is basically saying we're going to create our own validator set <laughs> we're going to create our own validator set i don't know where they come from maybe they're users maybe there's a whole bunch of them you know maybe maybe the block size is pretty small so you can run consumer hardware but still you're sort of converging upon an an example of a more proprietary ledger, right? And I don't know if it's good or bad, but you're seeing these applications assert control again. 
I, I think it's a, I, it's a great point, TJ. And I think it's like, it's just points to the fact that I think because the space is maturing, we're just coming to gr- like, gr- we're coming to grips with like what can and cannot be, and cannot be done given the technology that we have today and given just how humans operate on the blockchain. And now that we have like people actually doing stuff on blockchain and people are like, yo, I want this to actually work so I can use it consistently. We're like, all right, well, let's be more practical. You know, let's let's exactly. step back and let's just be a little bit more practical about how we do this and realize that we're not going to have like this ideal state immediately. Right. And that makes me pretty bullish on the future of crypto because that's how you bring people in. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's also just great that. I mean, ultimately, you have to create a product that works. Right. I mean, and, and that yeah. means it needs to be commercially viable and then. So you make certain sacrifices to ensure you're delivering that product and maybe it's like a little bit less decentralized or, or whatever, but at least works and it's solving a problem for someone, right? Like that was the promise of Maker early on. Like Maker early on was successful because it was decentralized, but decentralization, the ability for anyone to access it without being censored, like that was part of the fundamental value proposition of the application itself. That was a zero to one. But yeah, I think we're just working out a, you know, it's a it's still a new space and we're just running up against the constraints of what's possible and everyone's just trying to do what's best for for them and their users sometimes decentralization is a is a requirement to deliver an incredible experience to users and sometimes it's an impediment and i think it's yeah. a spectrum yep well i mean said. also well, like, uh, it's not oh, sorry. it's just yeah, yeah, like go, go. um decentralization can mean a lot of things and um it could be maybe less like if the world nukes everything like it'll keep running. Like I think that's kind of like I think Bitcoin tries to do that. Uh, where decentralization, like for something like this, if they're running their own Oracle, maybe the Oracle could get manipulated and it's a little less safe. But if it um, is is it's committed to censorship resistance, like it can't be updated really easily. If the code is open source, it's permissionless. These other things, like it still has a lot of the properties that we want. Um, and it's hard to honestly say what's going to happen because it's, just, it's literally like a blog post, right? So everyone's yeah. just speculating. But it'll be cool to see how it plays out versus these other uh, strategies. Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I can't wait for our audience to plug in and hear this awesome episode. It's going to be Shake's the only one with any meaningful follow. So they're going to be these <laughs> NFT DGENs. Like, what the fuck are these guys talking about? You know? Go back to DJ in town. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Does anybody have any final things they want to say? before? Yeah, we yeah, I've got one. What is DJ in town? It's well, a project? Yeah, it's a stealth mint that Magic Eden launched. Um, they It's by like this ETH influencer. I think his name's Ramo. And uh, it's like the only project that's done any meaningful like volume or had good price action in the past like probably actually since Cyber Samurai Tensai Ceremony. So Tensai Ceremony. So it's like all the talk of the town right now, but it's like you minted it. And then like a day afterwards, they just like posted a wallet and you were supposed to send them in with not knowing what happened. And then they now have sent back. It was like, a lot like pack, and, dude. I know you're going to pack. It was like the first time that somebody did like a pack, like anticipation game theory thing really well. The first time on Solana, I'd say. Yeah. So maybe uh, not financial. I mean, the art is like trash, but I think I almost think that was kind of like part of it. I don't know. Yeah, they might rip um, again. They're yeah. the only thing that people are talking about, I feel like. 
But uh, all right, guys, I was sick. Yeah, we didn't Thank even. You. I was just thinking we didn't even talk about the Solana phone. That would have been Solani interesting to talk about phone. too. But I know, I know we've been going an hour and a half. So if you guys want to wrap it, let's wait. I'm sure there'll be another announcement about Salami. Phone. We're bullish. Yeah. Chris Capital is bullish. That confirms my biases. Unlike this Cosmos thing, um, that confirms my bias. So I'm bullish. Phone. You know the Cosmos Hub shit. Press it a little bit. Um, yeah, Cosmos. I actually, I actually forget I have Cosmos. It's just down so bad, it's almost worthless. You don't own Cosmos. You own Adam. Whatever, bro. See, that's there's, a problem. There's, there's that was no... the one thing I was gonna say. Their like business development is like, like, and like a community. I feel like is so much uh, worse than like just weaker than Solana. You know. Well, dude, their whole. But that's also a maybe, right maybe that's like, bullish monolithic blockchains because they're like a country. They yeah. have an identity versus Cosmos yeah. is more like. Cosmos SDK kind of feels like NPM where it's like there's all these people building things in isolation. And they don't have a unified identity where Solana is like we're all just building on this mothership together. And we're like yeah. collectively make I don't know, but I'm not in the uh, Cosmos no, I mean, ecosystem. So I can't I comment. love what Lucas said, like that just it's just really cool. We get to see these like experiments play out, you know, like it's just it's just exciting. Um, but uh, the one thing also, I don't know if we like, said about you should go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, the one thing we sorry, didn't... Cut you off. It's all good. The one thing uh, I don't know if anybody said about DYDX, but like, the, like the I mean, you guys talked about the community a little bit of it, but like the the this like in trading, there's like you say a, there's like a crowded trade, right? And I feel like building a, a, a futures decks on Solana is like a very crowded trade, whereas like building it on Cosmos is like there's no competition, and there is a community of like Cosmos and Adam people. And they're just going to flock. So their DYGX is going to like capture that market like immediately, right? They're going to be the biggest and best player. Whereas, you know, Chris can speak to it, but there's like several um, futures, you know, derivatives DEXs on on Solana already because largely because of Serum and all like the you know incentivization to build those exact products. But so there's kind of like yeah, but but I, I think that's a, that's an interesting part of it is that they're like going where there's basically no competition. Yeah, well, I think I well said, and it's a part that's not talked about. I don't think enough. So, let's see. I mean, they're they're like, yeah. I mean, you said you know, Cosmos is an ecosystem. It's because right, their whole ecosystem got wiped out when uh, Luna collapsed, right? <laughs> like, mm, but that's that's also yeah. bullish, and I'll tell you why. Where are all those devs going? Oh yeah, good point. Yeah. Salami, yeah, uh, they're coming to they're hanging up the, they're, they're hanging up the cleats, or are they going building something on IBC? Maybe they go to DYDX. Also, I'm not saying that the cause I didn't. If it was interpreted, I'm saying Cosmos ecosystem doesn't. It does, there's no ecosystem. I mean, like that. It just seems like it might be more fragmented because no, there isn't that, one central that's, place. That's 100 percent right. Apt analysis. You already said it, so it's too late to take. I I, I just thought that maybe you interpreted like I was saying they didn't have it. I'm trying to be a uh, a humble and partial impartial observer. Well, shake over here. And definitely TJ over here being oh, very dude, I'm, partial. I'm trying to, to find eggs of liquidity. <laughs> I'm trying to find eggs of liquidity. And I tell people that, you know, that's just what it is. That's what we do. Okay. Dude, you know what? On a completely different note, a more levers uh, themed, I was thinking about how, with what happened with the three O's capital thing and them using leverage, uh, you know, and I feel like leverage in crypto is like demonized a lot. Like a lot of successful like traders will be like, oh, like you don't need to use leverage at all, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking about the name of our podcast is like after leverage, which is this thing that like in markets is kind of, uh, you know, it's kind of like infamous. Like it's not like really like a good thing. 
And then yeah. I was thinking about how like there's shows like up only, which is like up only is like unanimously a good thing if the prices are going up only, right? But up only has like a curse where every time they do a podcast, the price goes down. And there's actually a Solana NFT show called Good Price Show. And I was listening to it today. It's by these two big influencers. Every time, ever since they started their podcast, the Solana NFTs have gone down like 80%. So <laughs> I was like, dude, maybe leverage can be, you know, the opposite, the anti-hero yeah. here. A yeah. Just a thought. Basically, it, it, when we do a pod, someone goes insolvent. <laughs> 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 Something blows up when we talk about it. Sorry, DYDX. Yeah, every time we do a pod, there's a fucking DeFi exploit. That's our, leverage, yeah. that's our superpower <laughs> it's um, funny we started levers before we all got into crypto and then now it's just like it, it's such a fitting name it's kind of crazy it would be um, interesting to do episodes still that are that like we used to you know I, I, i'm 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 down i'm down to do that we just uh we categorize them as as such so people can uh you know all crypto opt in oh yeah we yeah. don't know anything but crypto though you're not gonna be able to do an episode like it just is all consuming you know it's all it's all there is these guys know a lot about kava i think <laughs> <laughs> we do know a lot about a lot about kava and the, the main thing that i know is after chris and i go eat some meat in about 10 minutes we're gonna be having kava <laughs> the goal in life the goal in life is to basically be own a, a well first of all it's kratom okay to wait, own a kratom. Drink, wait, it's kratom, not kava. You're saying? Well, there's kava in kratom, but we're on the kratom train. <laughs> okay. So it's like you know, it's Bitcoin, ETH, kava, kratom. You know, you have to pick your elite. You can you can dabble in both, but ultimately I definitely you have an elite. I've always thought kava is way cooler. Like I always think of kratom as the thing that like the junkies use, like because they can't like <laughs> buy heroin. To be honest, that's I mean, how I. That's like how I knew it. I'm not even kidding. <laughs> I mean, uh, but Kava, well, I was like, oh, it's like, you know, kind of like this cultural cool thing that they do in Well, Fiji. we're here to shift the Overton window. So <laughs> basically, people like it will just be like super drunk on alcohol and they'll be like, you try it. Kava? And I'm like, you're just, you're just a sheep. <laughs> you don't understand. How does it, like, what's the, what does it feel like um, for the viewers? I mean, uh, T, do you want to go? No, you got it, bro. I feel like it's like coffee, but a little more uh, like less super focused and dialed and a little more like creative, but you feel very focused and like excited. Like I generally feel like a sense of excitement and then I'll just be like working and listening to music. And I guess it's like it makes just animates conversations and like coding fun kind of. But it's not like a crazy thing where you uh, I don't know, Interesting. Um, feel so it's like, like Zan. out of like out of body like <laughs> crazy kidding. thing. But like people hear about a new drug and they just assume it's like it's gonna do something crazy to you. You know, it's like only alcohol and uh, nicotine or tobacco, or whatever. It's like those those are well known and you can do that. Anything outside of that yeah. circle, it's like it's gonna destroy your life. It's DMT, yeah. <laughs> but really, it's a lot chiller than a lot of things. But also, we were we were we were uh, pontificating that maybe our just uh absurd tolerance for uh caffeine has facilitated like a inherent uh tolerance to kratom as well because they're like a, re a related root or something or plant i don't know dude you you should start drinking celsius that's that's the move now dude <laughs> dude that that's like that's like processed kratom 
like 200 milligrams of caffeine. It's insane, dude. Are you saying oh, Celsius? Oh, you think that's insane? Are you saying Celsius got liquidated, Lucas? <laughs> yeah, what was your tweet about Celsius? That was funny. You're like, uh, coincidence? Celsius goes insolvent, but I, don't, I forget what you said. Yeah, Celsius goes insolvent, but the drink becomes the number one energy drink in the U.S. Dude, I mean, Shake is over here literally pounding like eight monsters a day and trying to tell me it's not unhealthy, dude. That is like literally... <laughs> <laughs> they're gonna agree with me i mean well tj tj probably will i mean tj's drinks like i don't know if you still do but he used to drink like a gram of caffeine probably right yeah i mean i chris and i both i mean it's not just me um it's probably probably shots of espresso a day dude i'm a, a freaking hacker i'm a hacker i'm just juiced yeah, on stimulants yeah, all I, the time you think this call you think this code writes itself <laughs> When when Chris and I were with uh, Shake in L.A. for whatever January February whenever it was, like I'll smoke I'll smoke uh, a few cigarettes a day. You know I'll have my jewel. Shake has got this this Nick stick out there. It's a vape. I was like, oh perfect. Let me have a rip of this thing, right? So I'll uh, t- take a rip of it. That thing just it just destroyed my mind. I was in an absolute whirlwind of nicotine. That thing is so robust. It's industrial grade. It should be illegal. Yeah, dude. No half measures, man. I mean, if I if I moved out there with you guys, like I would be working at that fucking kratom shop within a week, you know, to pay <laughs> off actually, my fucking debts. Probably get along with. I'd Jerry. be doing dishes I in the back. You, I think you get along with Jerry. The, dude, the get out here. Get out here. <laughs> this is cope, but I was we were like I actually got this podcast from Teach, and it was like uh, invest like the best with. Uh, uh, Tyler Cohen and this other guy, and they were just talking about super success- successful people having uh, kind of addictive personalities, but they just channel it into productivity. And then I listened to that, and I was like, "Well, this just sanctioned me to drink an absurd amount of kratom." So, <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> they were like talking about how Buffett just drinks a bunch of diet coke, and I'm like, "Yeah, maybe, maybe kratom is just our new age, like more wholesome hippie version of diet coke." Maybe in 30 yeah. years, I'll realize it's really bad for me. But like, yes, you know, I think that's probably gonna... more likely. And the key part <laughs> of that, Keeney, is that they channel it into productivity. OK, it's not the actual drug. It's that they channel it into the productivity. Lucas, I'm pretty sure we're having a productive meeting on Thursday. at <laughs> Kava Socials. So let's see. Dude, check all right, out all my codes open source. Check out, check out all my code I'm writing. <laughs> I'm good send Let me show my GitHub, GitHub real quick. <laughs> yeah. To all the fans out there, if you don't believe Kratom works, go check out Chris Peeney at GitHub. Hey, follow I'm, me on I'm, GitHub. I'm Chris popping Peeney. off right now. I'm getting Chris off. Chris Peeney okay? at Pornhub.com. <laughs> Sir. Um, all right. Thanks, everyone. Shake, you want to end the stream? Yeah. Thank you for uh, listening, watching, and I hope you all have a beautiful uh morning afternoon or evening wherever you might be see you on the next one gn peace